0: Would you please pray with me again as we go to the Word of God. Father in heaven, we submit ourselves humbly to you. God, we want to be changed by your Word. We know that your Word is life. Please come by your Holy Spirit and make us to be like Jesus. Speak to us today, open our eyes, and help us to see what's real. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've been going through a series, Pastor Lyle has been going through a series on the book of Luke. And what's going to happen over the next few months is that Pastor Lyle is going to continue that series in Luke... And every once in a while, we're going to have a little interruption to that series, and the interruption will be me. (laughs) So here I am to interrupt you. Uh, The interruptions will come over the next, uh, I guess, three sermons that I preach from the book of Colossians. I'm going through Colossians in the youth group right now, and it's a book that I've been studying a lot recently. And so instead of trying to preach through the whole book, which we won't be able to do in three sermons... What I'm going to do is draw out for you three major, major things, major themes from the book as a whole, or from, lo- from whole chapters of the book, uh, and show you what God has been showing me as I have studied this book quite deeply, and in prayer, and by his Holy Spirit. Now, I want to say one more thing about the Seahawks, and then I'll be really be done with it. So there's all these 12th man flags all over the place. And you heard now there's one on the Harbor Building in downtown Vancouver, right? Do you know what that is? Most of you probably do. In football, there are 11 players allowed to be on the field at any time, 11 men. And so the 12th man is that in the stadium in Seattle, the crowd is so loud that it often disrupts the opposing team. And so the crowd considers themselves the 12th man. They are yelling so loud that they affect the game on behalf of the Seahawks. But as I was thinking about it this morning, you know, Paul, the Apostle Paul, is also the 12th man, right? There were 12 apostles originally, and Judas was the one who betrayed Jesus, and then he committed suicide, and so they needed to replace the 12th apostle. And, of course, they did so in their own human way, uh, but we never hear about that guy again who originally replaced Judas. And really, God chose the apostle Paul to be the 12th apostle, the 12th man, to complete this team that Jesus had put together to bring the gospel to all the ends of the earth. And Paul is an astonishing man. He is an astonishing man. And what we're going to do today as we look at Colossians is learn a little bit more about Paul himself. And what I want to say in the title of this message is that Paul was a man of prayer. We're going to talk about what that means. I don't just mean a man who prayed a lot, but a man of prayer. I'd like to start out with a story. I love stories. This story is about George Mueller of Bristol, who I have mentioned a few times in here. Uh, Raise your hand if you remember a story about George Mueller or know some things about him. You can go ahead and raise your hand. Okay, a few people. So I'll recap briefly who he was. So this is in the 1800s. And I think maybe in the 1820s or so, George Mueller started out as a pastor Um, It wasn't in Bristol, it was near Bristol, sort of in central England, somewhere there. And he decided, he was a pastor, and he, he felt called by God to go to his church leadership and say this, I don't want to receive a salary anymore. Could you imagine a pastor going to their church leadership and saying that? He said, I don't want to receive a salary anymore. And the reason is because he believed God was calling him simply to pray for whatever money he needed, and have God provide it. Now, that sounds kind of crazy, but his, his congregation said, okay, you can try this. Just tell us how much you need uh, from time to time, or tell us when you're in need, and we'll, you know, we'll try our best to supply you know, through individual donations. And he said, no, I'm not going to tell anyone whether I need money or not. I'm only going to tell God. And so now they thought he was even more crazy, But a year went by, and he was married. He had no kids at that point. He was married. A year went by, and he ended up, through just through prayer, there were some times when he didn't have hardly any food in his house, but they always ate, and he ended up at the end of the year with more money than he was making in his salary. He received through that year more money than he had made previously in his salary, actually almost twice as much. Maybe I should try this. I don't know. I'm not bold enough. So... So he ends up with almost twice as much. And then he feels led to go to the city of Bristol. And when he arrives in the city of Bristol, he's a pastor there for a little while. And then he feels God calling him to start an orphanage. Because there's all these orphans just running around on the street with nothing to do and, um, and living very bad lives. And so he begins taking in these orphans just into a home that he has rented and praying for everything that he needs. He never asks anyone for any money. He only asks God. And in addition, he only asks God for staff. He doesn't advertise for the staff of his orphanage that he needs. And this goes on for 40 years. And by the end of the 40 years, without having ever asked a single human being for money, only asking God, George Mueller was housing all of the orphans of the city of Bristol, all of them. He was housing over 2,000 orphans in two gigantic complexes, and all of it was organized through prayer. Now, that's the background, so here's the story about George Mueller. So he goes through his whole life doing this, and then at the age of 80, okay, 80 years old, he decides that God is calling him to be a missionary, He had thought God was calling him his whole life. He had felt that he would someday be a missionary. And at the age of 80, he senses now is finally the time. And so he begins traveling the world, again, just praying for his needs. And he preaches about faith in Christ and the the ability of God to answer prayer and the life of prayer. He preaches all over the world, preaches all through Europe. He was in Canada. He was in the United States. He ends up going on a tour through Asia. And one time, he's in China preaching, I suppose he doesn't speak Chinese, so he must, be, he must be preaching through an interpreter or preaching to some of the, uh, the Europeans in China, and someone asked him this question. They said, George, you've got 2,000 orphans back in your orphanage in Bristol. You're all the way over here in China. Don't you need to be back home taking care of everything that needs to be done, administering those orphanages? And his answer was very interesting. He said, there are a few things that need to be done there, and I have my son-in-law to do those. But most of the work that I do for the orphanages, I can do right here. Most of the work that I do for the orphanages, he said, I can do right here. And that is because the primary work that Mueller did for the orphanages was prayer. He simply went to prayer for huge amounts of time every day and sought God for the specific needs that the orphanages had and God would supply them. He could do that work in China just as well as he could do it in Bristol, England. Now, on to the Apostle Paul. Many people have studied the life of the Apostle Paul. And we'll be looking at his, uh, some of his life here today from the book of Colossians. So you'll want to have that open in just a minute. We'll be going to a number of different places in Colossians. Paul affected the world dramatically. He changed the course of the Roman Empire, or God did through him. He expanded the gospel of Jesus to the Gentiles, to those who were non-Jewish. He was the great apostle to the Gentiles. He wrote more of the New Testament than anyone else. So he is a figure who looms large in world history. And so many people, both Christian and non-Christian, have studied his life academically. And there have been a number of different theories about the source of Paul's success. Who was this man at his core? What was it about him that made him so powerful and such a world changer? Some of the theories that have been put forth include this one, that Paul was a fantastic organizer. Some have said that Paul, and we see him doing this in his life, he went around to all these different cities and he set up churches. And he put in place systems for those churches to run well. And so some have said that Paul's genius and the real source of his success came from his ability to organize and administrate, and he set up the church for the way that it would run in the future. Others have said, no, 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 that's not the core of who Paul is. The core of who Paul is, is that he was a great evangelist. You see, Paul would go to a city, and he would preach, and he would preach, and people would turn to Christ. People who'd never heard of Christ before would become Christians. And so his great ability was to preach and spread the word. Others have said, no, 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 no. You've got to understand how smart Paul was. Paul was so well-educated. He studied under some of the best teachers and most well-known rabbis of his day. And he was extremely smart. Some of his letters are actually very hard to understand because they're so deep, particularly the letter to the Romans. So some have said Paul was a great philosopher. He was a great intellectual. And I want to say today that all of these people are wrong. Paul was all of these things, of course, but all of these are only means that God used. The core of who Paul was is that Paul was a man of prayer. He was a man of prayer. All right, let's dive into the book of Colossians. Do you have it open? If you don't, flip there fast. All right, the book of Colossians. We're going to look at chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 4, primarily. And there are only four chapters, so we're only skipping chapter 3 today. But we won't look at the entirety of each section. So let's look at how the letter opens. First of all, Paul opens the letter the same way he does all his letters, with a prayer for the Colossians. He's praying that grace and peace will be given to the Colossians from God. After he prays for them, he moves in, in verse 3, chapter 1, verse 3, he moves into talking about his prayers. So notice he begins by praying for them, and then he moves into talking about what he prays for them on a regular basis talking about his prayers, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus, when we pray for you, because we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, and of the love you have for all the saints. So Paul is clearly regularly praying for the Colossians. Now this is remarkable. It's remarkable because Paul did not actually know the Colossians. That's one of the reasons I decided to study this letter this year, is that it's it's a unique letter in the New Testament. He had never met the Colossians. He knew very few of them, and he had never been to their church. He had only heard about them. And so in this letter, Paul is a lot more explicit than he is in some of his other letters, where he'll say things like, in Philippians, he says, whatever you saw me do. And whatever you heard me teach, do that. Put it into practice. Follow my example. But in this letter, he can't do that because they've never met him. And so he has to tell them very clearly, uh, unlike some of the other letters. So he's never met the Colossians. Now skip down to verse 9 with me. He's begun by talking, he's begun by praying for them. Then in verse 3 and verse 4, he's talked about what he's prayed for them. Then in verse 9, he starts to talk about, again, prayer. So as we move through the first chapter, he's talked about, he's prayed, and then he's talked about prayer and prayer. Those are his subjects so far. And here's what he says in verse 9. For this reason, because of all the, all the things I've heard about you, and what I want to happen in your life... so that you may have great endurance and patience and joyfully giving thanks to God the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. Now, there are so many words there, maybe it just rolls over your mind, I'm not sure. Paul is very deep, and you could get a lot out of almost every word that he puts into those sentences. But look at the opening there again with me in verse 9. For this reason... Since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. He is praying constantly, every day, in fact, and not even just by himself, with other people. He is praying with other people every single day for people in a church that he has never met. How many of us here today can say, don't raise your hands? How many of us here today can say that we pray every day, even for those who are closest to us, for the people who mean the most to us, and yet Paul is praying constantly, every day, for a group of people he has never even met? That is remarkable, and says something very deep, very profound about what Paul believed about prayer, and what perhaps we don't believe about prayer even if we say we believe it why is he praying so much for this group of people that he's never met you can see in the verses that i just read the rest of verse 9 verse 10 verse 11 and verse 12 he believes that without his prayers the colossians will not grow to be what they could be in the lord he believes that his prayers are essential to their growth in christ Not just what they do. He's not just telling them, oh, you need to go seek God. And, you know, then if you just do it on your own, then you will be able, you know, by God's power, you'll be able to become what you should become. He believes that his prayers are required in order for that to happen. And he expects that if he prays, it will happen. The Colossians will become the people they were meant to be. They will become people full of the life and power of God. That Satan will be driven out of their midst and that they will live in the kingdom of light even now on the earth. That's a remarkable, a remarkable thing that Paul is doing, praying constantly for a group of people he's never met. But it gets even better. Let's turn now to chapter 2 and verse 1. So flip over here and let's have another uh, glimpse of Paul's life of prayer. Here's what he says in chapter 2 and verse 1. He's talked, mostly in chapter 1, the rest of the chapter, he's talked about the truth of Christ. He's tried to show them what reality is really like. Reality is really controlled by Jesus. That's what he said. Jesus is the one who created it, and he's the one who is in control of it right now, even if it doesn't look that way. Then chapter 2, verse 1, we get this. I want you to know, Colossians... How much I am struggling for you, and for those at Laodicea, another church near the city of Colossae, and for all who have not met me personally. Read that again. I want you to know how much I'm struggling for you, who he's never met. And how much he is struggling, or the word can also be translated contending, battling, striving on behalf of those who have never met him. Now in what sense can Paul be struggling for people who he's not with? It can't mean that he's teaching them often, or that he's trying to counsel them, or that he's trying to do nice things for them. He's not with them. In what sense could he possibly be struggling or striving or battling on their behalf? The answer is that he is battling in prayer for them. He describes his life of prayer as a battle, almost like a competition, a war on behalf of the Colossians. He is going to war in prayer for them. And in verse 2 of chapter 2, we see what his purpose is. It's so that they could be encouraged in heart and united in love. And then they will have the full riches of complete understanding. And they will truly know the mystery of God, which is Christ. He believes that only through his prayers will the Colossians truly know Christ. And he begins to lay down his life on behalf of the Colossians. In verse 5, it gets even uh, more out of this world, if you can imagine that. In verse 5, he says, Though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how orderly you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. Do you catch that? He has prayed for them so much that he believes he actually has a, a real sense of what's happening with them simply through his prayer. Next, let's turn over to chapter 4. And we'll be looking down at verse 12 in chapter 4. And this is, if you take a letter from the New Testament, and you read the whole thing over and over and over again, make sure you don't skip the part with the hard names. You know, the part that, that seems like, why is this really here? It was okay for them there, but what do I need to know about Epaphras, and Onesimus, and Aristarchus, and Archippus, and all of these people that I can't even pronounce their names? Why do I need to know about them? Well, the answer is that these sections of the letters where Paul is greeting people and and receiving greetings, sending greetings from others, these sections of the letters are there to give us a glimpse of his life with this small group of people. His life with these um, other evangelists that he, and these other churches, the life of the early church. And in chapter 4, verse 12, we get an amazing glimpse into the life that Paul had with his closest friends. Uh, Epaphras is the, the man mentioned in chapter 4, verse 12. Epaphras is a man who had first preached the gospel to the Colossians. So you found that out earlier in chapter 1, if you'd read the whole thing. Epaphras was one of the Colossians, and he became a Christian, and he had preached the gospel to them and started their church. But Epaphras didn't stay with them. He had actually gone off on a missionary journey with Paul. And he was, at the time of of writing this letter, he was with Paul in whatever city they're in. We don't know exactly. um, But he was with Paul where Paul was in jail in this city. Paul writes the letter from prison as he did most of his letters. Paul seems to have been in jail for like half of his life. So Epaphras is the one who who told Paul about the Colossians. And in chapter 4, verse 12, we read this. Epaphras, who is one of you, he's one of the Colossians, and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends his greetings. He is always wrestling in prayer for you, that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. I vouch for him that he is working hard for you and for those at Laodicea and Hierapolis. Paul says that Epaphras is wrestling in prayer on behalf of the Colossians. Again, don't raise your hand. Can you describe your prayer life as wrestling with God on behalf of other people? Is that your experience? Not only that, we see that this is actually the the work that Epaphras does. This is the work. Epaphras is working hard for the Colossians, the Laodiceans, and those who are in Hierapolis. This is the primary work that he does for them. And we see here then what it means for Paul to be a man of prayer. He did not believe that his primary work was to go out and preach the gospel. That was part of his work. That was part of his calling, for sure. But his primary work, the thing that bore the most fruit, the thing that was the most essential, and the thing he was to commit, probably the most energy and time to, was prayer itself. I think this is, in fact, why why God put him in jail, so often. Have you ever thought about how, in many parts of the world, the gospel is going forward powerfully and people become, are becoming Christians left and right? You know, in many parts of Asia and Africa, in China in particular, people are becoming Christians by the hundreds, by the thousands. We don't even know because a lot of it's hidden. And I've wondered for a long time why is that, that in these places where people are persecuted, where it's harder to become a Christian, where you could lose a lot, why is it that so many people are becoming Christians? For a long time, I thought it was simply because they were persecuted. You know, okay, so there, you know, there's persecution, and so that makes people more, uh, more intense in their faith. And I think that's true to a certain degree. But I was reading a book recently. It's a book called The Heavenly Man. And it's by a guy who was a pastor in China, and he spent a lot of time in jail. And he actually, I think, spent more than half of his ministry while he was in China. He spent it in jail. And at one point in the book, he observes this about his own life. He says, when I was in prison, I would pray all the time. It was the main thing that I did because there was nothing else I could do. But when I got out of jail, in the times where I had a few years where I could go out and do whatever I wanted and preach the gospel, I spent most of my time doing the work of the church, and I neglected prayer. And my times in prison bore far more fruit than my times outside of prison. And it occurred to me that what if... What if one of the reasons that the gospel is spreading so fast in some of these countries where Christians are persecuted is because so many people are in jail and they have nothing to do but pray to God? They're not distracted by all the things that distract us. They're not busy doing all the other church work and neglecting the main work, which is prayer. This is the work This is the core of Paul's life, just as it was the core of Jesus' life, right? Don't we see that in Jesus? What did he do before he began his ministry? He went out and fasted and prayed for 40 days. For a month and a half, he did nothing but pray. A month and a half! And we wonder, where's the power of God in our church today? Where has it gone? Now, I'm afraid that what many people will do when they hear this message is they'll think, okay, that's crazy. (laughs) Paul prayed a lot. He dedicated his main work to prayer, but that's Paul. He's the great apostle to the Gentiles. He's this one who saw Jesus visibly on the road to Damascus. I'm not Paul. I'm not Jesus. Let's look at one more place in the book of Colossians. You stay in chapter 4 here, and I want you to look at verses 2 to 4 with me. Chapter 4, verses 2 to 4. Paul says this, Devote yourselves to prayer. Being watchful and thankful. Uh, The word watchful there may well mean waking up in the middle of the night and praying or praying until late in the night, as we see Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane telling his disciples to stay awake and watch and pray. Verse 3, And pray for us, too, that God may open a door for our message, so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ, for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. What I want to observe here. Is this simple fact that in Colossians and in almost every letter that he wrote, Paul asks the people that he's writing to over and over again to pray for him? He asked them in Philippians, he asked them in Thessalonians, he asked them in Ephesians, he asked them in Romans. In Romans, he goes so far as to say, I am begging you, Romans. To pray for me. And it is clear that Paul believed that without the prayers of the church, his ministry would fail. The Apostle Paul, the one who saw Jesus face to face, believed that his ministry would fail unless all of these different churches prayed for him constantly and with passion. He believed that he would fail. He begs them over and over again. You must pray for me. You must pray for me. He says, you must join together with me, working with me by your prayers. Now I want to ask you this in a very unashamedly self-serving way. Do you pray for your pastors? Do you pray for your church leaders? Don't raise your hand. Because your leaders, I, the other pastoral staff here, your elders and deacons, are nothing compared to the Apostle Paul. And if he would fail utterly without their prayers, then we definitely will. How many of you here today are members of Ebenezer Baptist Church? I'd like you to just go ahead and raise your hand up in the air, nice and high. If you're not a member of Ebenezer Baptist, you can become a member. If you come talk to the elders or you come talk to me, uh, that's a great way to express your commitment uh, to this church, saying that you believe this is where God has called you to be, and you want to become a deeper part of the church. So if you'd like to become a member, talk to me. It's a great thing to do. But for all of you who are members, and for those who aren't, I want to share something with you. This blue thing, do you know what this is? This is, I took this home recently for a little bit of light reading. This is the Constitution and Bylaws of Ebenezer Baptist Church. It's a great document uh, to read at night if you are having trouble sleeping. But there are a few sections. It's an important document. We have to have it. It's a very good thing that we have it. It's just not fun to read most of the time. But there is a fun section in it. And I want to share with you today my favorite part of the Ebenezer Baptist Church bylaws. So if you have your copy, I'm sure you carry it around with you, right? I want to share with the, this with you from the, the bylaws of Ebenezer Baptist Church. And this is from page 3 and Article A of the bylaws, and this article concerns membership in the church. And what it does is it says what the commitments are for those who have become members of Ebenezer Baptist Church. And I'm just going to read for you my favorite part. Here it is. It shall be the duty, the duty of all members of the church to live a pure Christian life, to honor and esteem their pastors and to pray for them fervently and daily. Let me repeat. It is the duty of all members of Ebenezer Baptist Church to pray for their pastors fervently and daily. In case you're not sure about what that means, fervently means intensely as if you were in a wrestling match with God over your pastors. And daily means every day. Not once in a while. It means every single day. A lot of people have wondered and thought about how the German churches in this city, including this church, which was originally a German church, if you don't know, uh, just, they, they were thriving during the 1950s, 1960s, 1970s. They were thriving, tons of people coming to Christ, lots of great things happening. In this church, there were 650 members in 1963. And people have tried to come up, lots of people, even people over at the University of British Columbia, I've shared this with you before, have studied the German churches in this city, because not all churches at that time were thriving. They studied the churches and said, how was it that they were thriving so much in those days? They come up with all kinds of answers. Maybe it was because there was so much immigration. That was the main reason. Because there was immigration of uh, new people from Germany or German-speaking immigrants, so they came to the church. Maybe it was because they did hospitality so well. Maybe it was because they all lived together in the same neighborhood. Come up with all these different reasons. But I say, that's not the reason. Those are just the means that God used to cause the church to grow. If this really happened, what it says in this document, to any significant degree, if any significant part of those 600 members were praying fervently and daily for their pastors, for the church, for new believers, for their leaders, God was answering their prayers in all of these ways. These people had just come out of, many of them, out of the experience of World War II. Do you think that taught them how to pray? It taught them how to pray. But we are distracted, and we tag prayer on like this little extra in our lives. I'll just finish up with one more story, and this story is about me. I didn't grow up in the church. Many of you know that. I became a Christian when I was 20 years old. And I don't know how many of you didn't grow up in church or can remember a significant time in your life when you were not a believer. But if you can or if you can't, I want to remind you or tell you what it's like to live in the world without Christ. It is not just whatever. It is the state of being lost. I can remember distinctly from my time growing up just how empty the world seemed to me and all of my friends. My friends and I, my brother and I used to talk about constantly how meaningless life was. When I was in high school, I spent a lot of time building a really fast car so that people would think I was cool. (laughs) And then I drove it around at over a hundred miles an hour. And I remember driving it that fast with the feeling inside of me thinking, I kind of wish it would just flip or crash, so that all of this garbage would end. That's what life is like outside of Christ. People without Christ are not just okay, they are lost. They don't have meaning in their life. They don't know the truth. They are going the wrong way, and their life is like death. Many of them realize it. Many others have lived so long in it, they've become hardened to it. But that doesn't make them any less lost. Thousands and thousands of our teenagers today who haven't lived long enough in it to be hardened by it commit suicide, cut themselves, go through incredible battles of depression because of the meaningless and emptiness of the life that they live. When I was 20 years old, I was in my bedroom by myself reading the Bible, and God spoke to me in a very clear way. And I became a Christian. And my life is not perfect now. There is lots of suffering in Christ. But my life is flooded with joy and meaning and peace was never there before i live in the kingdom of the son of god and it is so much better but for a long time i thought that that just happened to me because god chose me god just decided to do this for me i don't know why he hasn't decided to do it for so many other people yet maybe he will maybe he won't But clearly, there were no other human beings involved in my conversion to Christ. It was just me and God. And then in 2009, my grandfather, who was a Christian, my parents were not Christians when I was growing up, my grandfather, who was a Christian, died. And I went to his funeral. And after the funeral, a man came up to me and he said this. He said, during the 1980s and the 1990s, I was your grandfather's prayer partner. And for 15 years before your conversion, your grandfather and I met together every day and prayed for you. For 15 years. What kind of belief, what kind of faith, what kind of intensity does that take? For 15 years, I didn't show any sign of becoming a believer. I got worse and worse. And then suddenly, at the end of the 15 years, God answered the prayer. I became a Christian in my bedroom by myself. Right now, there are kids in our youth group. There are neighbors that you have who are close to Christ. Maybe they want Him. They want a way out in their lives. But God has chosen to lock up the power of the Holy Spirit in the church. John Wesley used to say that God does nothing except in answer to prayer. He has given the power, the keys to His kingdom, to the church. And they can only be opened through prayer. Constant, fervent, daily prayer for those around you. If we pray for them, they will come in. If we don't, they won't. But as Keith Green used to say, the church, the world is sleeping in the dark, that the church just can't fight because she's asleep in the light. Let's pray. Father God, I ask this simple prayer that by the power of your Holy Spirit you would make us people of prayer like the Apostle Paul. Amen.